Here in Taos, we have what's considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one of the many mountains that surround this valley. This sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, within the village of the Tiwa Indians here in Taos. And this particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. And it's also in some way a sacred symbol for many, many people who live in Taos. I have the very good fortune um, to be able to look out at it, to be able to take it in, in every season, any time of the day or night, any day of the year, as it's very, very visible from uh, where I live. This mountain, any mountain, simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain falls on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of forms of life are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, a lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intimately and intricately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say it lets life live through it, closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. This evening we'll explore equanimity. In Pali the word is upeka. Equanimity is a powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddha's teachings, it's included as one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections. And Patricia last night spoke about the first of these, generosity. Equanimity is the last, and there's eight others in between. It's also one of the four divine abidings, one of the four Brahma-viharas. Metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative joy, and upeka, equanimity. And it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that famous night with an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. 
as he sat there in his amazing grace, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go in his heart, relinquishing attachment, all attachment to all formations of body, heart, and mind, and breaking through to the great liberation, the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power, and the equilibrium of the heart, the mind, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of heart and mind to experience every sort of manifestation, every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external experience, and in the realm of feeling, the pleasant or unpleasant feeling associated with the arising, changing, and passing of internal and external phenomena. The Buddha described what can be called six-limbed equanimity, the equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or cankers, as the Buddha sometimes called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily or completely, finally. And who abides in the very natural state of purity in relationship to desirable or undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. This is a quote from the Buddha. Here, a yogi whose cankers are destroyed is neither glad nor sad on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, and then he goes through the rest of the doors, six sense doors, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She or he dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness and the strength and ease of the heart, of the mind, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upekka is on looking. So equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain, whatever it might be, by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise, change and pass. On looking, it sees them fairly, without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity in the realm, as it's described in the realm of feeling or feeling tone, is neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. So we could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity 
offsets what we could call the weightiness of greed, the weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The heart, the mind doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember uh, as a child, I loved to find that point of balance when I was playing seesaw with another child. There was always a certain kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside in the moments when this would happen. The poet T.S. Eliot said it very beautifully. And these are his words. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection. And at the same time, it's a great spaciousness and strength of heart, strength of mind. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a teaspoon of salt into a cup of water. And because of the very small container, the water will be extremely salty, of course, quite harsh, undrinkable. But on the other hand, if we put a teaspoon of salt into a large body of water the size of, say, the Rio Grande River, the biggest river here in New Mexico, it won't have the same effect at all because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness that the salt is put into. And as we all know, life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of heart, the spaciousness of mind, with which we can meet and look on at all of life's experiences, all of the internal and external phenomena with balance, with equipoise, with the heart of greatness, with what is called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with a specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times, particularly the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, as well as the arising of various other accompanying states of consciousness, of mind, that they're all met and seen, looked on at evenly through the heart, through the mind of equanimity. 
the function of equanimity as an enlightenment factor is to inhibit partiality. So upekka then manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen uh, with commentary by uh, uh, Uchiyama Roshi. And it's called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we can, of course, bring this teaching immediately close, right here and now, in relationship to our cook, to our uh, Beth Tenzo, our wonderful Beth Tenzo, and, of course, into our life um, when we're back home. And these are Dogen's words. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This, in turn, allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and to settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. He goes on to say, a dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you have made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. And he says, in practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a yogi is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking, (laughs) not in our case, but (laughs) without distinction, our mouths should be the same. (laughs) There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. I told Beth she was in our Dharma talk tonight. (laughs) So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? When we practice here in retreat and in our life outside of this retreat setting. And when at times the heart, the mind is calm, tranquil, serene, and this is known. And when we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is, when the mind isn't listless and when it's not agitated but is really interested and appropriately energized 
at those times, as you know, we don't feel impelled, we aren't the least bit interested in exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. Simply recognizing and knowing that this is what's occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a brief time or maybe for a longer period of time, is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of our capacity to relate to all things with equanimity. The Buddha had a very graphic metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode. He said, one is like the charioteer who looks, looks on with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. And I brought it up to date <laughs> and said, uh, and say, uh, it's like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. And we're able to see where we're going and what's passing by with more ease. This quality, this factor of mind, allows the process of practice, the blossoming of insight, to unfold without getting caught up, without getting mired in the habits of mind that stop things up. The habits of clinging, attachment, and identification that can actually create a block, create a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance or the energy of equanimity, even the subtleties of the habits of identification, the subtleties of the comparing mind, can be seen and known and not clung to, thus allowing understanding to really blossom deepen, and mature. And of course, as we all well know, until equanimity is really truly matured, we lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of a long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity in the way that it's uh, taught and practiced as a Brahma-vihara, as a divine abiding. Silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over again, directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that we use for metta practice. And the phrase that I used is, I am the inalienable heir of my karma. My happiness and suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. By the end of the two weeks of practice, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance, of evenness, of a neutrality of mind and heart. A day or two before the end of the retreat, this thought came up, well, there's equanimity here. <laughs> seems to be a fairly deep and quite an abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, well, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. 
<laughs> if this was a Zen session, uh, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought just disappeared. Well, later that day I was uh, startled in true Vipassana style, uh, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers, though the note was actually from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And it said, would you like, would, we would like you, it wasn't asking me, it was telling me, would you, we would like you to give the Donna talk to the yogis tomorrow. Well, for a moment, equanimity completely flew out the window. <laughs> and my heart felt like it stopped. And the old habit of fear flew in the window into my heart. And my thoughts came up, I can't, I can't do this. I absolutely can't do this my old habit of fear. I've been silent for so many weeks, so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and talk. It's impossible. And then the heart, then the mind relaxed and saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in, ah, this is my equanimity test. Of course. And I can do it. I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat staff, for the meditation center staff. Gratitude for the teachings, gratitude for the practice, gratitude for my own practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. And what, was being, what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, quieting dislike, resentment, self-judgment, the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt, as disapproval, as not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we may think of as ourself, as me, as mine. Equanimity also manifests in quieting the attachment and fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen, and is developing. In those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval subside. With the clear space of a really true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and aversion to stick to when they arise. When equanimity fails, it produces what's, what the Buddha called the equanimity of unknowing, which he called worldly-minded, very lofty term here, worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. 
<laughs> so what does it mean, worldly-minded indifference? I was intrigued by that term. It occurs when we don't clearly see or see through the object of our attention with a focused attention, with the focused attention to mindfulness and investigation. And instead, we're blindly seduced, seduced by and swept away into the happenings of life, seemingly equanimous with it all. This is not equanimity. This isn't upekkha. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in ignorance. And this is some words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible visible object with the eye, and he goes on in relation to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught ordinary man or woman who hasn't seen or conquered her or his limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future karma, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha often spoke very bluntly, (laughs) very straightforward, very succinct with his teaching. So a little bit of a personal story, part of which, or from a certain perspective, I think I, I'm not sure, I couldn't quite remember, but I may have told a little bit of this last week sometime. When I first began living here in Taos, as probably many of you know, there are many beautiful things here, many handcrafted things in the store windows. And I was quite infatuated with them all. Um, I would walk along and look in the windows and uh, see what I wanted, and uh, even sometimes I thought what I w- the thought would be that I needed, uh, and and then sometimes that very painful contraction of must have, you know, I must have this, and it went on for a while, and I really noticed how painful it was. So I decided to do a practice. I would purposefully take myself along for walks in front of the shops and look in the windows and just watch the process very carefully, very mindfully and watch as I gave it mindful attention and saw how painful it was and felt it and watched it change and it changed radically. I was able and am able to walk along, don't usually walk along much anymore looking in the windows, but uh, if I happen to be there, I can appreciate the beauty and the craftsmanship that's there and no feeling of must-have comes up anymore. It's a great relief. And of course we all know from our own experiences that when we're inflamed with greed, when we're inflamed with fear or resentment, it actually isn't possible in those moments to look on with a true equanimity. And we probably also, every one of us probably also know the pretense of equanimity within ourself in the midst of greed, in the midst of resentment or anger or fear or disappointment. 
the kind of glossing over, the, igno- the ignorance or ignoring the, those states, pretending something to ourselves, the pretense of equanimity, the it-doesn't-really-matter stance, which is not equanimity. It's actually indifference, which is considered the near enemy of equanimity, indifference. Indifference masquerading as equanimity. Upeka is based in attentive, clear presence of mind. It's not based in dullness or in indifference. It's not a kind of casual passing mood, and it's also not produced by exertion. It's the result, it's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the heart, the fruit of training the mind. And the development and blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, investigation, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, and concentration, and many other factors, actually, that we've talked about through these weeks. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops of the mind that you've encountered maybe daily here in retreat, in your own mind, and that we also encounter in our home, our home life, maybe coming from others and, of course, also coming from our own mind. The vicissitudes of praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disregard or disrespect. True equanimity is actually able to meet all of these sometimes harsh-feeling experiences, harsh-feeling tests, and is able to regenerate its strength from sources within ourselves, from the growing development of each of the other six factors of enlightenment, for instance, along with the development of other qualities, other capacities that blossom through our practice, such as confidence, faith, loving-kindness, compassion. There's an amazing practice that was, and maybe, I'm not sure, uh, still is sometimes done by the Hopi Indians. I do not recommend this practice at all, uh, but we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and manifestation of the great power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that is a great strength of equanimity. And this is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing 
with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved up slowly toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up on his crossed leg, coiled in front on his breechcloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and wholesome resistance in relation to the mind, the heart, getting seduced, getting seduced by and caught up in states of greed, aversion, or fear. And will possess the power of renewing itself only if it's rooted, deeply rooted in insight. There are two particular understandings or insights that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you this evening. And that as they develop and ripen into insight, these understandings, they're the root of equanimity. The first of these is our growing clarity of understanding as to how the vicissitudes of life originate, how they come to be. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experiences of ease, the happy experience that comes from a a deep sense of well-being, are the result of our karma, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is karma. This is our karma. We could say we're born, we spring out of the womb of karma. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we're the inalienable heirs of our karma. So, for instance, just as soon as we've performed any deed with words or actions, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. We could say that everything that happens to us and the ease or dis-ease in our heart, in our mind, is the outcome of our own mind. And the deeds, our own mind and deeds, our suffering, our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind, our motivations, and our actions of speech and body. It's not due to our wishes for ourselves or due to some other person 
or to some maybe outer, seeming outer, antagonistic, seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so this first basis of equanimity, this is the first basis of equanimity. When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, what is there to fear? The heart begins to relax. And I think this is really important. I'll say it again. (laughs) When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves. What is there to fear? The heart begins to relax. But of course, as we've experienced fear, uncertainty, insecurity, arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through what we could call our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence and a growing courage to perform wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of maybe what might be some particular kind of hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this practice we're doing, this incredible training of the heart, is a very is a very good deed really the best deed and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in and through all aspects of our life one of the things that's been really important for me in understanding karma is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions always It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. And so we practice. We practice this. It becomes established in us. It actually becomes a refuge. The Buddha, in speaking so honestly about himself, as he often did, he says this about himself. More and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our heart, the mind actually becomes more tranquil and serene. And we gain the great strength of a patient heart 
and the evenness and the balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and the various difficulties in our life. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our way of life, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the result of our deeds might bring us some sorrow or some degree of pain, maybe in the way that others treat us, or through some particular upheaval or turmoil in our life, or in some maybe surprising or unrecognizable way. And even if sometimes the results that occur aren't what we expected, not what we had in mind, results that maybe seem contrary to what we might think our motivation is, Many, many years ago, I had a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually much more accurately say for me, she would say at appropriate times, this isn't what I had in mind. Which would always kind of stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look, to look very closely at my expectations and my motivations. And more importantly, actually, in those moments, to really simply be with what was occurring with an open heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we learn to make suffering our teacher, then it is, in a sense, it becomes our friend. And maybe it's sometimes a kind of stern and in a certain way a demanding teacher. But it's potentially a truthful and a really well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. Along the way of our practice, with the development and the blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that, in fact, we have the strength to endure when we need this, when we need to endure, and we have the clarity to see clearly, the strength and the clarity to see clearly when that's what's necessary, when that's what's called for. In befriending suffering, by looking directly and clearly at it, We have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes again and again, but to begin to walk down a different street. The teachings of karma and the understanding therein can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from karma to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves from repeatedly being born or repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. As we more and more clearly see our own craving, our own delusion and our habitual tendency to create and engage in situations that strain and that sap our strength and our healthy resistance, a 
disgust, as the Buddha called it, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. So this is the first insight, this insight that's the basis of equanimity, the understanding of karma. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and understanding of anatta, no-self. So I'd like to talk just a little bit about this, or a little more about this. From this perspective, there's no one, no self, performing any deeds, nor do the results affect a self. The fact is, the, the truth is, that it's the delusion of a separate self, a separate solid self, a separate me, that creates suffering and disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. We feel, we think, I've lost, I've lost this or that. What's mine is lost. Or we feel, I've failed. Or I've been praised. This pleasure, this pleasure is mine. And the unwavering mountain of equanimity is shaken in the delusion of identification of me mine, and I am. Unshakable equanimity of heart, of mind, is established actually by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine, which may be quite a daunting thought to let it all go. (laughs) Undoubtedly it's a daunting thought. And so we begin with the small things from which it's actually pretty easy to detach ourselves, And then gradually work up to the possessions, the goals, and the identifications that we so very tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts was for two months. And I was the first visiting teacher to teach there. And I was there long enough to really settle in. And yet again and again and again there was the awareness that this house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it came in kind of small and simple and sometimes surprising ways. When I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. And it was actually difficult not to have a telephone. For instance, if I wanted to check or send my email, I had to carry the computer Uh, over to the Yogi telephone booth, which was in another building, in the administration building. So I lobbied for a phone, which in moments felt like it was for me. And there was quite a degree of tension, quite a degree of stress in this lobbying for me. But of course, in truth, the phone wasn't for me. The phone, in truth, was for the many, many, many others who would be using that telephone over many years. 
At one point I was told that it was okayed, uh, that a phone was to be put into the house. But when that was going to happen was unknown. So at that point there was this very quick letting go and uh, no more thoughts about it came up again. I really relaxed and I began to truly feel that it really didn't matter if the phone arrived when I was staying in the house or not. As it wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. It did arrive, though, actually, (laughs) while I was still there. So during that same period of time, it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room of this house. And the housekeeper, Jeannie, uh, brought the rug catalog over for us to decide which rug to order. It clearly wasn't a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were choosing actually for everyone. And I noticed that there was such a big difference in the experience in the heart of this, this kind of choosing. Not the subtle contraction of something being mine or being for me. There was really an openness, a spaciousness. There was no contraction, no clinging in this choosing process. It was really a, a lot more fun. So the small things first, and then working up to giving up, letting go, relinquishing such thoughts of self, beginning with objects of seeming minor importance that we think are ours, and then beginning to relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that we're identified with as who we think we are. Our personality, so to say. And it's really important to understand that it's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am, that's what we give up. That's what we let go go of, the thought of it. Ajahn Sumedho, who I mentioned in another Dharma talk, the abbot of the Amravati Monastery in England, shares a really wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual uh, tendency of his shows up, and in this case he's talking about the critical mind, he says, oh, there's my personality. (laughs) Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me, even including the emotions and aversions which we may regard as the very center of our being? Can we have that attitude of, oh, there's my personality? There's a particular teaching that the Buddha offered to his son Rahula, And it's a wonderful illustration of this. I very much like the uh, teachings that the Buddha gave to his son from when he was a little boy and on up through his uh, growing years and into his adulthood. They have a certain very personal quality about them. And this is the story. uh, This story is um, about Rahula, the Buddha's son, when he was 18 years old. 
and he was following uh, the Buddha uh, on this particular day as they were on their way into the village for their alms round. And he was walking behind the Buddha, and he noted with, with admiration the physical perfection of his father, the Buddha, the master, the Buddha. And he reflected with quite a bit of pride. He said that he himself, to, he said this thought to himself, I'm of similar appearance. I, too, am handsome like my father, my father, the Blessed One. The Buddha's form is beautiful, and so, too, is mine. Well, having such a father is not so easy, because the Buddha read his mind, (laughs) 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 and uh, decided to admonish him at once before such vain thoughts as this would lead him into greater difficulties. So the Buddha framed his advice in terms of contemplating the body as neither a self nor as the possession of a self. Rahula, uh, who felt quite scolded by his father, decided to sit down by the side of the road under a tree uh, and not go on to the alms rounds with his father and kind of reflect on the admonishment and the teaching that he received from his dad. And uh, although very soon he got distracted uh, in conversation with another uh, monk, another bhikkhu who was passing by. The following teaching, the teaching that I'd like to uh, share with you that was given to Rahula, was given by the Buddha the next day to his son in order to show the quality of impartiality, equanimity, in order to dispel Rahula's attachment to his body, which had not been removed on the previous day by the brief instruction on egolessness the egolessness of material form. The Buddha uses the four great elements in this teaching on equanimity as both a metaphor and as a direct teaching in relationship to the body itself, being a composite of the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. And he also adds in the element of space, meaning by this all of the openings, all of the apertures, the holes in the body internally, and all of the space around everywhere externally. So this is the teaching he gave to Rahula. Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Rahula, develop meditation that is like water, For when you develop meditation that is like water, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people wash clean things and dirty things in water, the water is not horrified, humiliated, or disgusted. And he goes on with the same teaching. Rahula, develop meditation that is like fire. For when you develop meditation that is like fire, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as fire burns clean things and dirty things, fire is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted. 
etc. Rahula developed meditation that is like air. Just as the air blows on clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, and the air is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too Rahula developed meditation that is like air. Rahula developed meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as space is not established anywhere, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Essentially, this is our practice. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I, I am, to whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter the heart. When we realize, when we truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, How could it cause us any agitation due to lust or hatred or fear or grief? The teaching of anatta is really a very primary guide along the path to liberation, uh, a guide along the path to perfect equanimity. Equanimity, this unshakable balance of mind, of heart, is rooted in insight. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, isn't cold. It's not heartless. It's not dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness. It manifests out of a fullness or a completeness of understanding. And at some point in our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to what's called absolute equanimity. And will develop into an equanimity that is a manifestation of the highest strength and insight. The fruit, or as it's called by the Buddha, the deliverance of equanimity, is the escape from greed. And at that point, there's understanding, there's insight into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, into the dangers of the defilements, and insight into the advantages of purification. Understanding at this point produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within our own heart and mind which all manifest due to unlooking equanimity, what the Buddha called ex, uh, absolute equanimity or holy equanimity. And these are the Buddha's words. Just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not an increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen, such is the nature of holy equanimity. 
I'd like to share a very beautiful a description that I found of the heart, the mind of one who is fully awakened. The mind and heart of an awakened one is likened to a clear, well-cut crystal. And because it's clear, without stains, it fully absorbs all the rays of light and sends them out again, intensified by the power and purity of its concentrated energy. The crystal can't be tainted by the colors of the rays. Its hardness can't be pierced. Its perfectly harmonious structure can't be disturbed. In its purity and strength, the crystal remains unchanged. The equanimity of an awakened one is unshakable because it's absolute. And it's absolute very simply because it clings to nothing. This is our possibility. And I want to close the talk with... uh, as usual, the Buddha gives us uh, uh, the nutriment, uh, the aids to the nutriment of the development of equanimity. Some very, in some very specific ways, very practical ways. He tells us to listen, to, to approach, to attend to, to recollect and go forth, as he says, after monks, nuns, and laypersons who are accomplished in virtue, in sila. Concentration, insight, and who have the knowledge and vision of liberation. He tells us that hearing the Dhamma from such people is helpful. He tells us to dwell mindfully and to investigate states, and that if we investigate with care and with wisdom, our energy will be aroused without slacking. And when this happens, a spiritual joy is aroused and developed. And then he goes on to say that when one's mind and heart is purified with spiritual joy and uplifted with spiritual joy, the body will become tranquil. And when the body is tranquil, one's mind becomes tranquil. And we're told that one whose body is tranquil and who's quietly happy in heart and mind, that the mind is easily concentrated. And that when concentration develops and deepens, one looks on with equanimity at the mind that's concentrated. And we're told that there are some particular conditions in our life that will help us towards the arising, the development, and the perfection of equanimity. We're told maintenance of a neutrality towards living beings. Maintenance of a neutrality towards inanimate objects. And not to spend a lot of time with possessive people. And to associate with people who maintain neutrality towards beings and inanimate objects. And then lastly, we're told to make a resolve to incline the mind, to incline the heart towards the arising, the development, the fulfillment, and the perfection of equanimity. And so we practice here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with sincerity, we practice with diligence, 
we sit with a growing understanding and the blossoming of insight. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and with determination. And it's inevitable for us that each of the wholesome factors of heart and the liberating insights will develop, will continue to grow, and to mature within us. It's our karma. We could say it's our karma. And I'd like to close the talk with a, a piece from the Udana, from the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Actually, maybe two little short pieces from that uh, particular um, collection of teachings. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her or him? And the last teaching from the Udana. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there's no motion. Where no motion is, there's stillness. Where stillness is, there's no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place between the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And we'll sit quietly for a moment. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.